Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. If I sent you a message right now, say via email or WhatsApp, how would you really know that it was from me? If it was an email, one way to check would be to look for my exact address in that big jumble of text that sits at the top of each message. Now, of course, that could be easily spoofed. Fortunately, underneath most modern communications are some useful bits of security that can prevent incursions from hackers who want to pretend to be me. There are many ways that this security works, but in essence, messages will typically be encrypted with an electronic key before they're sent over the internet. When those encrypted messages reach their destination, a different, secret electronic key can be used to decrypt them. Now, a hacker might still intercept any encrypted messages that are flying around over the internet. But because they don't have the electronic keys to decrypt the messages, it would take them a long, long time and a lot of computing power to read or edit my messages to you. Encryption relies on some very tough mathematical sums, and it's fundamental to the way we authenticate each other and communicate reliably online. Never mind storing or sharing sensitive information like health records or bank details. But security, of course, doesn't last forever. And there's a new breed of technology coming that threatens to destroy our modern methods of security altogether. Quantum computing. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our award-winning podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Quantum computers will be able to solve mathematical problems faster and more accurately than modern digital computers can. That, of course, will be transformative for science and beyond. But quantum computers might also pose a colossal headache for modern internet security by being able to crack the algorithms that keep our data protected. Today, we'll investigate the risk that quantum computing poses and how our personal data might be kept safe in the quantum age and beyond. A quantum leap in quantum computing. Within a few years, it's hoped this, that's IBM's Q-System 1 quantum computer, will be cracking calculations that would take a standard digital computer years. 
Chinese scientists have announced their development of the most powerful quantum computer in the world. It works 100 trillion times faster than the fastest supercomputers out there. This technology is expected to totally transform the way in which we store data, process information, and develop technologies. Quantum computing is one of those technologies that's always been just over the horizon. It promises some enormous things. It's a completely new way of doing computing that could supercharge everything from basic scientific simulations to discovering new drugs to optimizing trading algorithms on stock markets. Quantum computing is very complicated and for decades, efforts to build the basic component parts, the so-called quantum bits or qubits, this is the technology that would allow the processing to happen, well, that's all been painfully slow. In the past few years, though, things seem to have been accelerating in a positive direction. Quantum computers are different. They're different than our digital, what we call classical computers that we have today, right, in our pockets, in our cars, in our homes. Krista Savori is a leading engineer in Microsoft's quantum computing group. A quantum computer relies on quantum mechanical principles to operate. It still operates on bits, but now these bits can be in quantum states. Okay, let's start from the basics. You said that classical computers operate using bits. For people that have never needed to understand the underlying mechanisms that make modern computers work, can you just explain what actually a bit is? Think of a bit, um, you know, a lot like a, a light switch in some sense, right? Your light switch is either on or it's off, right? It switches on or off. In our classical computers, everything operates on these on-off switches, which ultimately are a transistor. That's how we implement it. But these bits are zero or one. And all of the things you're doing, email, video, right? All of these things on your classical machines, behind the scenes, it's strings of zeros and ones, strings of bits that encode and, and map to what you do with your, your computers. And so the bits on quantum computers are called qubits. How do they differ from the more familiar bits? Yeah, a qubit is a quantum bit. It's this quantum state. And these quantum states can take on the form of, of different properties than just being binary, than just being on or off. They can actually be in a combination, we say a superposition, of on and off. It's a linear combination of on and off, of zero and one. And this is what a qubit is, right? It's this quantum state that can take on this combination of zero and one. And from these qubits, you can make up larger quantum states, and you can also take advantage of quantum mechanical behavior. These behaviors, you can then kind of orchestrate. You can orchestrate through a quantum algorithm, and it enables you to do things, in some cases, much faster than you would be able to do on a classical computer. Quantum computing 
is still in its very earliest stages. Very few useful machines exist at the moment, and those that do exist and which show potential still face the daunting challenge of being able to scale up without becoming unstable. It's worth noting that even when they do get built at the scales required, quantum computers will only ever be useful for very specific types of problems. You can think of them like highly powerful and specialized calculators. Quantum processors will run certain types of algorithms very well and extremely fast, but they won't replace the digital processors on the device that you're, for example, listening to this podcast on. Most people who will use quantum processing in the future will do so through a classical computer, connected to a quantum computer via the internet. And so in many ways, it's, it's a lot like supercomputers, right? Not everyone is accessing a supercomputer that so many kind of national labs have, universities. You know, folks use those for very special purpose solutions, right? When they have challenging problems, you know, they might turn to looking to get a solution from a supercomputer. And that's very similar with quantum computers. One area where quantum processing is likely to excel is in developing solutions for things like climate change. Fertilizer, for example, right? We want to be able to produce artificial fertilizer in a more efficient way. We want to rely less on the natural gas in our planets, other natural resources, right? We want to consume less of those as we work to produce food for our planet. So with a quantum computer, we can more accurately understand what's called nitrogen fixation, this chemical reaction that's naturally performed in the soil. We can understand that better and then work to produce an industrial catalyst that enables this reaction to be more efficient and thus more efficiently produce fertilizer. Many of these calculations are not impossible to do on classical computers, but they just take a very, very long time. Quantum computers would be able to simulate things like chemical reactions or the mass behavior of trillions of molecules of a new material. And they'd be able to do all of that in quicker and more useful ways. Some tech companies, including Microsoft, have already started making their early quantum computing systems available via the cloud. The idea is to encourage developers to familiarize themselves with the way that these systems work and to develop interesting potential new applications. Today, you can access quantum computers, you can run programs on them, you can learn about quantum development, but we're not yet to the point where we can expect a quantum machine to produce solutions that are better, faster, more accurate than our classical machines. All of that sounds very promising, but there's also a darker side to the coming quantum age. The extreme problem-solving ability of quantum computing also poses a rather large threat to the way that the world's data is kept safe and secure. It's worth pausing here for a quick explainer on modern cryptography. In other words, how your data is kept secure today. There are two main purposes. Tanya Langer is a cryptography specialist at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. 
So wand is really coming from the ancient Greek, the meaning of cryptography, which is secret writing. So you're trying to communicate in secret. Well, that's something which we often have a desire for. So we want to communicate with somebody without somebody else listening in. So in cryptography, we often model the, the parties who want to uh, communicate as Alice and Bob. And then we have a third party, the eavesdropper. And so you'll often hear me talk about Eve and Eve is our attacker, Eve is our eavesdropper. And so Eve will be the one who is listening in, but Eve can also be an active attacker. So she might want to disturb the communication between you and me. So if we make an appointment, hey, let's record this interview and well, we fix the time slot, then Eve might send us an interference and instead of meeting at three o'clock, I think we're meeting at five o'clock and then this interview will never happen. And so cryptography is supposed to protect the secrecy of the information and also the integrity so that nobody can modify the message. And also it would be bad if Eve could modify who it comes from. So it should be a message from you to me. So also the authenticity. Okay, so in, in modern life, where does cryptography sort of fit in? Where is it used in day-to-day -day ways which, which we might not be aware of when we're using them? Yeah, so it's actually good news for us if you're not aware that you're using us because the only times that we end up on the cover of the New York Times if, if something has went horribly wrong. So we're kind of the ones in the background. So we should just be working and not be in your way, but still keep things secure. So you use cryptography each time you're going on the internet. If you're seeing anything which starts with an HTTPS, then you are using cryptography or your laptop is using cryptography. Or your smartphone, if you're communicating with friends and family, is having a secure connection to them. Or just a normal voice call, you're talking to the, the cell tower. So that's the digital communications that we're all using all the time, whether it's voice or nowadays video, or as you said, HTTPS. I mean, this is something that people have increasingly seen on their website addresses, HTTPS on their website address. Just explain a little bit, what is the S meaning there? What does that mean in, in practical terms going on behind the, the picture of your browser? So, I mean, S stands for security. And so when you want to go to a web page, so you're going to The Economist, then you type this into your address bar and then your browser typically adds an HTTPS because you want to have a secure connection there. And then your computer and this other computer which serve the web page, they start a secure connection. And for that one, we need one type of cryptography, which is kind of a handshake. So we haven't met yet, but we're saying, hey, um, I want to talk to you, you want to talk to me, and here is how we speak. And in this one, we're then starting to use cryptography. So there are some type of mathematical algorithms called key exchange or key encapsulation. And with those, we agree on how we speak uh, securely. And it's kind of a magic thing that we, we have there. So we haven't met, my computer hasn't met the server of Economist, but we still are able to bootstrap security from something in the mathematics, which are called one-way functions. And once we have this key, then we can start sending a lot of information. That's where the, the bulk of the web page comes, all the text, all the videos. If you're hearing this podcast from the web page, you're downloading a, well audio through this. The encryption system is called public key cryptography. You can think of this as a bit like having a door that can be locked by one key 
but which can only be unlocked with a second secret key. You can distribute the locking key freely, because if anyone has that, they still won't be able to unlock the door. It doesn't compromise your security. Anyone who wants to send you a secure message can use your locking key to encrypt their message. Once encrypted, only you can decode the message using the secret unlocking key. One of the most widely used encryption mechanisms on the internet is called RSA. In RSA encryption, the locking key is a very large number that anyone can use to encrypt their messages to you. The encryption works by using prime numbers. Now, these are numbers that are only divisible by one and themselves. So 3, 5, 23, 739, 2,441. These are all prime numbers. Part of the RSA encryption mechanism requires that two prime numbers, much, much bigger than the ones I've just listed, two prime numbers need to be multiplied together. So you take two numbers, you multiply them, but then somebody who gets the task of figuring out which numbers you multiply to get a very large number, that one is a lot harder. Now, of course, if you try this with three times five is 15, you barely notice that splitting 15 into three times five is harder than multiplying them, but it gets a lot harder. I mean, you can try this on your computer, pick some larger numbers, and you'll see the computer slow down significantly. And of course, with cryptography, we use those numbers much, much beyond what your computer could possibly do. If a hacker manages to intercept an encrypted code, then they face a tough task to break that code. To crack RSA encryption, a computer has to work out which pair of prime numbers multiply together to make the code that it's found. It's a mathematical function called factorization. Now, if the number was small, say 15, like in Tanya's example earlier, then it wouldn't take even a millisecond for the computer to work out that its prime factors are 3 and 5. 3 times 5 is 15. But RSA encryption does not make things that easy. The prime numbers it uses to build its codes are typically hundreds or even thousands of digits long. A classical computer would take a ridiculously long time to figure out how to factorise a strong RSA encryption system. If it was using a brute force approach, in other words, just systematically guessing, a digital computer would probably take billions of years to solve the problem, which means the encryption is functionally unbreakable with modern technology. Quantum computers, on the other hand, could be designed to tackle these prime number factorization problems exceptionally quickly. Rather than billions of years, it might only take a few hours or less for a quantum computer to crack an RSA code. And that would be very bad news for all of us and our security. We don't really know when such a big quantum computer will exist. And there are estimates that are a little bit with a range. So nobody expects it sooner than 10 years. Pretty much everybody expects it within 30 years. If you have any applications like 
your health records as a person, or if you're an industrial person, you will have company strategies, you will have designs that you uh, consider so proprietary that they don't even go for patent. Think of the famous Coca-Cola recipe that nobody actually knows except for Coca-Cola safe somewhere. Those things, if they ever get transmitted over the internet, and if our big eavesdropper Eve is recording them now, then there's one big, big problem. Namely, the attacker in, well, is it 10 years, 30 years, would take his quantum computer and then be able to decrypt his recorded messages from today. When a quantum computer like this becomes available, the world could suffer the broadest, deepest data breach in history. Decades of secret intelligence, credit card details, intellectual property, military and medical data could become as easy to read as the articles you subscribe to every week in The Economist. So I've been talking about the doom scenario of if we don't do anything, the good news is there are actually some functions which are not affected by quantum computers. If we could change our cryptography systems to those new functions, the data breach could theoretically be avoided. But what are those functions? And how can the world change its systems to make use of them? That's coming up. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Today, we're exploring a world in which quantum computers could overcome the way that our sensitive data is kept secure. To help me understand this threat a bit better are The Economist science correspondent Gilad Amit and a familiar voice for Economist podcast fans, Jason Palmer. Jason, of course, presents our daily show, The Intelligence, but something you might not know about him is that he was a former Economist science correspondent too, and he's still the Economist's resident quantum technologies nut. Thank you both for joining me. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Okay, Jason, let's start with you. The quantum threat to cryptography, which we've been talking about in this podcast, sounds, you know, sounds terrifying. You know, the end of security as we know it, um, you know, computers that can't keep secrets, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me how much we should worry about it. Well, I think that's probably in line with how much preparation we do for it. The the data that are out there and are being stored and, and held for perhaps decryption later, there's not much we can do. So the question now is what's to be done, given that this threat is coming once quantum computers become capable of actually cracking this stuff. Can you just tell me what a quantum computer needs to look like? How many qubits does it need to have? What, what sort of abilities does it need to have in order to crack the cryptography of today? 
Well, they would have to look very different from what we, we do have today. We have, I guess, what you'd call primitive quantum computers at the moment. And the, the question of, of qubits kind of used to be the way to benchmark these things. There are a few, and some claim to have 100, and some are aiming for 200. The real question is how many logical qubits, that is, the ones that are there actually doing the crunching and not just there kind of keeping everything on track and correcting errors and what have you. Long story short, we would have to have a machine that is, is vastly more complicated, more highly engineered than what we have today, but is not outside the realm of possibility. And the, the research that's going on in this stuff in that direction suggests that we're very likely to get there. Don't ask me when, but it seems like the world is bent on having quantum computers of this kind of capability. Gilad, you've been reporting on post-quantum cryptography for The Economist in this past week. Jason said that how scary this problem is depends on how much people are prepared. So what are the strategies that you know, researchers and technology folk are using to try and make cryptography safe again? So there are two major approaches that are being explored at the moment in an attempt to outsmart quantum machines of the kind that Jason described. The first is something called quantum key distribution, which is basically using the power of quantum as a shield against the power of quantum, a sort of homeopathic approach, if I can insult it in that way. It's using quantum trickery to allow secrets to be transmitted from one place to another very securely. The downside is both sides of the conversation need to have the kind of tech that allows them to entangle particles and then read them. And this is expensive. And at the moment, I think the, the very first commercial quantum key distribution networks are only just being unveiled. So this as a widespread solution is very far in the future. The second approach is to go a step beyond what our current encryption methods do, which is pose problems that are very hard to solve without the right key. Um, take those one step further, find even harder problems, problems where quantum computers don't have an advantage. So this would be a new type of encryption using different algorithms rather than the sort that we discussed earlier, which use prime numbers. Um, can you explain the new types a bit further for me? So there has been a hunt ongoing to try and find harder mathematical problems where quantum computers don't have this speed up. And the National Institute for Standards and Technology in the US, which is the body that sets standards in the, in the United States, they have been running a competition since 2016 to try and find problems that meet these criteria. Their goal would be once an algorithm is determined to write it up as a standard, which means that people across industry would have a guarantee that if they were to adopt this algorithm, they would be interoperable with the systems that other companies use, and they wouldn't be the only ones trying to communicate in a language that no one else speaks. You mentioned the American National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, there. At a recent event from The Economist, we heard from Lily Chen, who leads NIST's cryptographic technology group. She told our colleagues and subscribers about the importance of developing new standards for cryptography. Today, the cryptography has been used everywhere, right? It is the cornerstone for the cybersecurity. So NIST has about 50 years history in developing cryptographic standards. So we kind of started to work on the post-quantum cryptography standards since 2016, because you know this has been a very active research area 
since 2000, and a lot of new algorithms have been proposed in the research area. However, in order to implement everything to the infrastructure, to the end device, we need the standards. So after the first call for submissions, we received 82 submissions worldwide and from 25 different countries and six continents. So this is a community effort. So NIST just lead this effort, evaluation, analysis, and test in the current internet protocols. So after the five years, we kind of narrow down twice. We plan to have our draft standards for public comments in 2023 and then publish the standard to 2024. So Gilad, NIST has opened up the field to find some of the best and hardest algorithms. And earlier this month, they announced the winning candidates, or at least the winning candidates so far. Can you just take me through what the most promising algorithms are that have emerged from this competition? So this is a competition that's been running for for six years. And after three intensive rounds of sorting, NIST have finally announced four finalists as well as four what they call alternates, which they're considering in a subsequent round. They basically break down into two types of algorithm. One is allowing you to transmit secrets and the other allows you to know that the person you're transmitting secrets to is who they really say they are. And so these two types of algorithms are both very important because they underpin our internet communications. At the moment, they have identified one candidate for secret sharing and three for identity verification. But because they want to make sure they have a backup They have this set of alternates, which they're considering, which are going to provide an alternative mathematical route to allowing secret sharing. So how do those algorithms that are winning the competition at the moment actually work? Most of these at the moment rely on a type of mathematics, which is very complicated, called lattice cryptography. And what it basically boils down to is if you have this infinite grid, can you work out the distances between one point and another on this grid reliably. Uh, There is no guarantee that quantum computers won't ever be able to crack it faster than regular computers, but so far there is no indication that they might be able to. Okay, yeah, well, that makes sense. And in fact, Tanya Langer, who we heard from earlier, also explained to me how another one of those promising algorithms actually works. So if you think of what are other one-way functions that we have in life, So one-way functions could, for instance, be a mixing of colors. So if you take like a nice combination of red, green, and blue, you can make any color from this. And if I show you some color as an output, it's hard to figure out what the input was. Okay, so let's assume that I'm meeting you now, and I want to make sure that later on you can be sure that something came from me. And I'm showing you the fingerprint of my mixed color. And then later I'm going away and I want to send a message and you should be sure that it was me. And then in order to make sure it was me, I'm including the input colors. So I'm telling you I had 20% red, 30% blue and 50% of yellow. 
And so then you know, well, you mix those colors, you look where it looks like what I had sent you, and then you know it was me. So you now have a very simple way of authenticating, and it's just showing it was me. Now in cryptography, we need a lot more. We need to authenticate messages, not just people. But from this example of authenticating a person, we can actually bootstrap to authenticating bit strings, and so we can actually authenticate messages. And so this simple example is, is a basis of what is called hash-based signatures. So it sounds like there could be quite a few methods that would provide good encryption in a quantum age. Jason, what's the importance of having an international standard for all this stuff? Well, for one thing, so that everyone is working towards the same goal, so that everyone who develops a standard, their kit can talk to everybody else's kit and everything remains secure. Another is if all the professionals who think about this stuff have one standard, everyone concentrates all of their kind of white hat hacking efforts to try to break it. If it gets the, the thumbs up from an agency like NIST, that is already a good imprimatur, a good reason to say this one's probably pretty solid. Everyone will pile in and try to break it. That's good. We want people to have a go. And if there are frailties of the system to, to be found, they, they should be found. Yeah, because there's no doubt that if there is a frailty, someone's going to find it. So you might as well find it and fix it as soon as possible. I mean, that's applicable to all computer science. Exactly that. Once standards have been set and countries around the world have adopted them in some fashion. How about the rest of us? How do companies, individuals, governments, how do they all start to make the transition to this new method of cryptography? So for most of us, this is just going to be something that seamlessly, hopefully, happens behind the scenes and doesn't really interfere with our daily lives at all. Things aren't going to become slower. There shouldn't be an abrupt transition as one thing switches over to the next. Security upgrades happen all the time. So that's for the average listener. For those responsible for managing secure data or who deal in cryptography, it sort of depends whereabouts in the ecosystem they are. One person I spoke to described the transition as a process of waves, cascades, and then a long tail. And just to break that down, initially, there are going to be these waves of upgrades to the big software packages that we all use. You know, Microsoft and so on, they are going to be implementing these standards and they are going to sort of roll those out without us even noticing. Then there will come the cascades, which is when organizations who maybe use a specialized product that relies on a big software package, they are going to have to make specific changes to their systems to ensure that they're compatible. And then finally comes that, that long tail. And this means that every device that communicates nowadays, whether it's a Wi-Fi connected fridge or whether it's a, an MRI machine in a hospital, these also need to be transitioned and there is nobody externally looking out for you. So this is where it really falls to the chief information officers, the, the chief security officers, or whoever most closely approximates that role within an organization to inventory the devices they have, the cryptographic techniques they use, and make sure that they are keeping up with the standard. And Jason, I'm assuming that all of these transitions, when they come, will happen at different rates for different organizations and different people. You mentioned earlier that acting early is one way of stopping this being a terrifying problem. Just explain what the advantage of acting early is. 
Well, bluntly, stopping today's secrets, as in those created today, from being hackable tomorrow, right? Again, the stuff that's already been socked away by malefactors all over the world, uh, that, that battle has been lost. But the sooner a company changes these protocols and beats the future imagined quantum computer, the safer those data are, even the stuff that's stored now. So they kind of avoid that harvest now, decrypt later type attacks. And if you have that, then, then you have something of a selling point, right? We are post-quantum cryptography ready. In an ecosystem where only some people can provide that security, that's going to look like a, a real plus. You know, something that this whole transition reminds me of is the Millennium Bug, or Y2K Bug, that everyone got concerned about uh, a couple of decades ago. And um, there was a lot of publicity around it. People were terrified that computers would just stop working. And this is really in the early days of the, of the web as well. So even fewer computers are online. Yeah, we mustn't forget that with all this excitement going on, there are some very, very worried people all over the world. The Millennium Bug, has it struck or hasn't it? 25, 35 minutes from now, we'll know what's happening in this country, what's happened over all the rest of the world. Those bugs are going to crawl all over our computers and make the planes fall out of the sky. Are they doing it or not? Well, now let's look at But in the bugs. end, it worked what? out okay. And people, perhaps at the sort of personal computer level, thought, you know, well, what was all the fuss about? Because Gilad, I, I suppose, in the background, that's where all the work happened, at the sort of computer server level, at the, at the level of chief information officers and others. Is the current quantum threat something similar where... It is a worrying thing, but the ability to do anything about it is sort of far away from people's desktops. I, I think it's a very fair comparison to make that the two are often compared. I think the one major difference is that people woke up on January 1st, 2000, and could see whether or not their preparations had paid off. There was a clear countdown, and then a sigh of relief could be breathed. Here, there is no such clear moment where we can tell if our preparations have paid off. So that is really the big difference, is that we know the impact is going to be severe. Jason's outlined the, the threat this poses to data, but we don't really know when this will happen. So we're going to have to be careful for, for a lot longer. And the point is that we probably won't hear when computers of that capability are reached, because it's an incredibly good skill to have that you don't want everyone to know that you have. Well, Jason, just going far into the future, I mean, how likely is it that any standard of the types we're talking about today and that we're hoping will you know, help computers stay safe in the sort of post-quantum age, how likely is it that those standards will eventually be superseded too? You know, Were they going to be good enough as quantum computers get even more advanced in 20, 30 years' time? I, I think it's entirely possible, if not probable, that this is not the last answer when it comes to these protocols. This is a good first stab at it. Um, and I think the issue now is for people who haven't had to think about this for all of the decades of computing as we currently know it, to start thinking about it seriously and, and creating a bit of agility on this stuff. If you have to go and crack this problem once and you have to talk to all of your devs and your engineers and say, here's what we need to, to sort of move to, just leave it as a, a thing that can be changed later. I think as quantum computers are, are developed and we learn more about their capabilities and their shortcomings, it's very likely that, that different ways of cracking this problem will come. Maybe the maths doesn't need to be as hard even as this. We, we just don't know yet. The point is, be ready to change because security will depend on it. I was briefly um, getting optimistic that we might have cracked something to sort of keep computers safe from the post-quantum world. But Gilad, uh, Jason has just pointed out that it's potentially forever, there's going to be a new doom on the horizon. I mean, uh, is, that, is that the case? So give me something to be cheerful about. Well, I'll start with the bad news, which is I completely agree with Jason. Everything he said is, is, is absolutely right. <laughs> That's not good. That's not. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the good news comes in, 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 in two flavors. One is 
we're already using systems for which there is no guarantee of their security. And they haven't been broken in catastrophic ways as yet. So the best way of testing the security and being reassured about the security of a system is to use it and to put it in front of as many bored hackers as possible and see, can it survive exposure to the real world? So that's the only guarantee we have now, and that'll be the guarantee we have in future. And it's a pretty good one. The better news is that we can hedge our bets somewhat, uh, partly by making sure that we are as agile as Jason says, and we're capable of just wrenching out one lock and inserting another, and that doesn't involve redesigning our whole system. And we can also use multiple locks. So for instance, rather than getting rid of the trusty security systems we have today and replacing them all with these brand new post-quantum ones, we could employ two types of padlocks together in a hybrid approach. And that way, if one is shown to fail, we still at least have the other. We're not diminishing our security. We're only keeping it stable, if not increasing it. Okay, well, that's fascinating. Gilad, Jason, thank you both very much for joining me. Thanks, Alan. Always a pleasure. Thanks also to Krista Savore and Tanya Langer. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read Gilad's and Jason's articles on post-quantum cryptography in the current edition of The Economist. As always, find your best introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.